Squares fielder. He's gone to the dog. Welcome to the Gone to the Dogs podcast. Man, I am out here in the great state of Arkansas on the White River National Wildlife Refuge for my annual trip with my my buddy Nubbin Moore. He and I have been coming out here 12 years now, and uh, I don't know when I've enjoyed the trip more, and, and we'll talk about it as we go along. It hasn't been all about stacking up coons because the coons are not worth anything anymore uh, they're worth more alive than they are dead in the fun that they provide. But uh, we're very, uh, one of the great things about the White River experience e- each year for me are the people that stop by to see us here. Why would I don't say they come by to see us, but they come by and, and visit. And uh, especially here at the High Plains uh, Waterfowl Lodge, we've got ample room here for people to come in and sit and relax and talk and uh just yesterday had a group from North Carolina, uh Jim McConnell and Jeremy and, and uh Don Moffitt and Evan Harrell and Bill. Uh what's Bill's last name, Nubbin? Don't make me tell a lie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh Bill. Hopefully he'll re- I'll remember that about as soon as I, we get on to something else. But we're especially uh favored today to have a guy that I've known now for several years. Uh, when I first met this guy, everybody was calling him Butch, but I don't hear him called that much anymore. Most of the people that know him uh, know him as Philip, and that's the black and tan man from Mariana, Arkansas, Philip Heron. Man, Philip, it's good to have you here with us. Well, it's good to be here. I always try to come down and visit and do what I can to help. Well, Philip is the guy that puts on that uh, black and tan reunion every year over there at the youth camp. That's a church youth camp, isn't it, Philip? Yes, it is. It belongs to the Methodist youth youth camp. It's right. A, it's separate. It's separate from the church itself, uh, as far as funding. Uh, it's uh, all the Methodist churches in Eastern Arkansas are, are in Arkansas mm-hmm. uh, help keep it going. Yeah, well, a voice that you heard earlier there, of course, is Nubbin Moore. Nubbin, how many years you've been coming down here, Nubbin? Too many to tell. Too many. Ever I, since '69. I, I came over here in '69 for yeah. the first time. I've been coming pretty regular ever since. Well, Nubbin, you you took me over to Phillips reunion. I, we call it Phillips reunion. I know it's for black and tan folks, but you're the one that does all the the organization and and all that because fairly close to your home, but. Beautiful location out there in the country, uh, trees everywhere, rustic cabins to sleep in, a nice big dining hall, and you got, tell us a little bit about, the, before we get into your history, Philip, and, and all, I, just a little bit of the background on that reunion. Well, Jarvis Umfer started it in the 60s, and normally it was at Sweat's Camp on White River, and uh, he would invite folks that uh, normally the only time they saw each other was in a competition hunt. And like uh, James Kirkland said once, you're my best friend today, you'll be my best friend tomorrow, but if I draw you tonight, I don't know you. And this (laughs) thing was organized so that those competition hunters had a place to fellowship without a scorecard being involved where they could just have a good time. 
And uh, in the early 80s, 83 or 84, it had gotten too big for Switz Camp, and it moved uh, to Mariana. And one of the reasons this, this place was lo- picked out was uh, a fellow by the name of Carl Meinhart was the f- ranger the, for the St. Francis National Forest. So he had connections with the youth camp. And the first year we had it, Carl was there, and he was kind of in charge of it, and I was uh, a mentor maybe or being mentored. And uh, then the next year, uh, Carl was transferred to uh, uh, South Carolina, and it became my project, and I've had it since 1984. And it's by invitation only. Uh, and if somebody doesn't want to do right, uh, their invitation is canceled. <laughs> I understand. I understand. And that's the way it should be. I know I particularly enjoyed going the year that I went over there. And, you know, a lot of the names that people will recognize uh, all around us in the world of coon hunting and, and certainly in the black and tan breed. Uh, uh, some some people like Jarvis Humphers, Tam Young, and I remember particularly a guy that I always enjoyed seeing at the night hunts and kid around with him over my UKC years and all. Randy Skaggs was there. People like Bruce Gillum, uh, all just and Carl Meinhardt, of course. And I remember that one year we were there. Uh, Kevin, your grandson, Philip. Uh, uh, he's in the room here with us as we're recording, and and Carl's grandson. I were having a big time on the four wheelers around there, and they weren't very big at that time. But anyway, it's just a real great fellowship thing. Lots of food. Uh, Jamie Perrin, who'll be joining us, and I hope to get him uh, on a, on a, a recording here this week. Uh, was helping you in the kitchen. I think Jamie's been a big help to you over the years, hasn't he? Yes, Jamie has, but uh, there's a fellow that comes with Jamie named Ricky Duke that doesn't have a dog, but he comes for the fellowship, and he is an outstanding cook, and he normally works <laughs> in the kitchen. Right. Well, we uh, have been the benefactor of that event, although in in recent years we haven't been going just simply because it does happen on Thanksgiving weekend, and for us that are traveling, considerable distance that kind of requires us to miss thanksgiving at home so we've been coming a day or two later but uh, uh one thing that that's always been, <laughs> been enjoyable to me is the fact that you have leftovers in the terms of eggs and and who knows what all's food that you've provided for us you know through the years of so that that's been a great deal for us well it's better to to save it and give it to y'all than it is just try to figure out what to do with it yeah and uh or just throw it away (laughs) and we yeah we want to make sure we have plenty so if in that case uh when we have plenty there's leftovers well there's one thing about when i come to arkansas i eat and i eat lots (laughs) and it's all good it's all good well philip let's uh let's talk a little bit of just give people that may not know the man in the black hat that's always running around at black and tan days doing this that and everything uh 
And uh, all I I want to just get a little background on who Philip Heron is for those people around the country that may not know. What well, where are your roots? Where'd you come from? What you know was your progression to get into? You know, talk about your military career and then into your dogs. Well, uh, growing up, uh, Daddy worked for the Massey Harris factory, and we moved around a good bit. And we were in and out of Mariana several times, but uh, it was uh, I spent different different years in different schools, and I uh, two different schools in high school. Uh, but when we moved back home, I was uh, involved with a, uh, an uncle, and we had deer dogs, and I really love to hear a good deer race. And, uh, yeah, I do too. That's why I'm a walker dog now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Don't try to be cute now, Felder. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I, that's one thing about that old walker dog I got out there. He's He's not been a deer dog. But go ahead. Anyway, uh, after I got out of high school, back in the 60s, everybody said, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. So I went north to Illinois uh, to go to school at Southern Illinois University, which was uh, only about 20 miles from where uh, Mama's sister and her husband lived. And I was supposed to stay with them. and work my way through college. Well, it took me one semester to realize that college was not for me, at least not at that time. Uh, so I dropped out of school and went squirrel hunting. And uh, <laughs> Shortly thereafter, uh, I was either going to get drafted or join something, and I moved back home when 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 it didn't work out for me to be in college, and I joined the National Guard. Well, they uh, gave me a bunch of tests, and almost as soon as I joined, they asked me, did I want to go to OCS? My scores were really high, and they told me that I was probably going to wait a year or better to go to basic if I didn't sign up for OCS. So I did, because I had met a girl in Illinois that uh, I fell in love with, and we wanted to get married. I went to basic training. and was in Fort Polk, Louisiana, when uh, my wife at that time turned, or girlfriend at that time turned 18, and she climbed out the bedroom window, and her best friend took her to the train station, and she called my folks, told them who she was and where she was, and they came got her while I was at Fort Polk. And she didn't go home until her folks consented to the wedding. Well, shortly after we got married, I found out I couldn't just quit work to go when deer season came in because I had a family to support. And I was really downhearted that I didn't have enough time uh, to spend in the woods. and. Didn't have my deer dogs anymore. And a fellow that I worked for with the Soil Conservation Service survey crew said, have you ever thought about coon hunting? You do that at night after we get off work. And I said, well, if it's anything like fox hunting where you go out and build a fire and sit around and get drunk, 
I don't want no part of it. And uh, the, the guy's name was Vaughn McCartney. And uh, he said, and he lived all 75 miles north of where I lived, and we were working 50 miles south right on the edge of the White River Reserve. But he said, I'll tell you what, I'll bring two dogs Friday night where we hadn't got to work the next day, and you go coon hunting with me. Well, he brought two blue tick hounds to work with him, and that night those two blue ticks put on a show. We treed four single coons in less than an hour, and I was hooked. One trip to the woods is all it took. Well, I went and found me a grade blue tick dog that wasn't worth a flip, but I didn't know any better. And uh, he told me something that I have never, ever forgotten. He said, there's six breeds of dogs. He said, there's good ones and bad ones in all six breeds. More bad ones than there are good ones. But if you want something you can be truly proud of, you pick a breed and you stick with it. He said, at some point in your life, you'll have one that you're truly proud of. Well, I've been blessed to have more than one that I was truly proud of. But anyway, uh, I thought blue, black and tans were, were pretty. And, and back in, in the 60s, there were a whole lot more black and tans than there are nowadays percentage-wise. And uh, uh, we had some good ones around here. And uh, Jarvis Umphers in particular was a mentor back when I first started. And I saw an ad in the American Cooner for black and tan puppies for $25. And they were about 10 miles from where my in-laws lived. So I asked my wife, uh, didn't she think after a year it was about time to go home and visit her folks? And she said, well, probably so. So I didn't say any. I'd saved up. I asked the guy, and his name was Tom Fisher, uh, if he could hold the puppy until I could save up $25. And he said he would. So we drove back up to her folks on Friday night, and that Saturday morning I got up early, and I went to meet Tom Fisher. And I picked up my first little puppy, and it was about all 10 weeks old at that time. And I carried it back to the in-laws. And needless to say, any puppy of any color, and a hound puppy, they're cute when they're about 10 weeks old. So uh, they fell in love with the puppy. And I'm not going to tell you that first one turned out to be a good one. He was a good deer dog. <laughs> and he broke himself from running deer. Yeah. And he never did, you know, he'd run in Triacoon, but he never was anything special. And to be truthful, I didn't have anything special until Carl Meinhart got transferred into the St. Francis National Forest by the house. But that's another story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was your first experience with black and tans, that puppy. Yeah. And then I want to get into talking more about your your line of dogs and what you've accomplished and so forth. Uh the side that most people know about, besides your dogs, and I was fortunate to walk, uh, actually be a monitor on the cast in 2016 when one of your dogs was in. I think that was about the final eight of the 
of the UKC World Championship. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it's pretty well established that your dogs have done real well down through the years. But you got involved at some point in time with the American Black and Tan Coonhound Association. And I know that you've been really involved with that over the years. And tell me a little bit about how that started out. Well, uh, Jarvis Umfers had a truck that I recognized, and he'd stopped off for a cup of coffee in Mariana on his way to White River. Well, there was a fella in there with him that I didn't know. He introduced me to a, a man named Doc Vinson, Donald Vinson, from Bowling Green, Kentucky. And I hadn't been sitting there. I couldn't have been five minutes. And Doc said, uh, are you a member of the Black and Tan Coonhound Association? And I said, what's that? Uh, this old country boy didn't know anything about it. And Doc reached in his billfold, pulled out a membership card, signed it, handed it to me, and he said, and I quote, the first one's on me, big boy, the rest of them's on you. Well, he made an impression that that association was something special. So the next year, I went to Black and Tan Days, and I realized it was something special. And it didn't take me long to realize that you had more fun if you was doing something than just sitting in a chair watching folks go by. And at that time, I started taking entries or doing just whatever I could uh, become part of that association and be a working member not just mm-hmm. somebody that sat right. on the sidelines right right nubbin you've been a member of the black and tan association for how long you know? oh a long time i guess it was in the early 80s when i first joined it sure yeah. did yeah well this was in the 70s mm-hmm. yeah and and uh a little bit more about Doc Vinson. What were some of the dogs he had or things that he... Well, he the, was a very popular individual, especially in, in the uh, Black and Tan Association, but I think in the Coonhound world overall. Overall. Uh, matter of fact, he was president of the association for three different times, two back-to-back and then one other time. But he was most known uh, for two dogs. One was uh, McDonald's Little Cole, and he was, uh, he didn't make national Grand Knight champion, but he made that Grand Knight of the breed at Autumn Oaks. And the dog he was most familiar with was a dog called uh, Joan Southern Rambler. W.E. Jones produced him. He was out of uh, Jarvis's uh, Tennessee Rambler. And that dog, uh, Went went a long ways a lot of times. Yeah, had finals at the world and and uh, Grand Night champion at Autumn Oaks and yeah. Well, uh, you mentioned Jarvis Humphers. Of course, everybody in the Coonhound world knows Jarvis. Uh, he's most uh, popular or most well re- recognized for the guy that developed, uh, founded, and developed PCA in the early days, Professional Coonhunter Association then later the PKC, and really the guy, the innovator that started the money hunt game that's, you know, basically taken over the Coonhound world. But, uh, and Nubbin and I just uh, a couple days ago, wasn't it, Nubbin, we got to talk to Jarvis 
on the phone. Jarvis has been going through some health issues here, and we were concerned about him. And uh, I think Nubbin, you and your wife had called him to sing happy birthday. His birthday was a couple of weeks ago. I told Becky, I said, we need to call Jarvis. He's been sick. And I said, let's sing happy birthday, try to cheer him up. Of course, he didn't answer the phone, but we left it on a recorder. And then a couple of days ago, he called me back. I I think he'd been in the hospital and away from home. And he finally got the little song we sang him, and he called back, and we chatted for a while. Yeah, we were driving into DeWitt, which is Mm -hmm. our closest town here from where we are. And I got to talk to him a little bit, and he he said he'd be uh, happy to sit with me for an hour or so and and record. So I'm looking forward to doing that when I get back home. But anyway, Jarvis at one time was very, very much involved in the black and tan breed. I mean, I remember first meeting him at Autumn Oaks years ago, and he was always up there on sta- on you know getting his name called on Sunday, Sunday morning because of some of those dogs. What do you remember about Jarvis and back those days? Well, back in in the early days, Jarvis had been on the board. He was serving as executive vice president of the association when he founded PCA, and he resigned and said that uh, uh, he felt like he needed to divest himself from the association just a little bit because he was going to be dealing with all breeds. But uh, Jones, or not Jones, Tennessee Rambler uh, was winning a lot, and he had a dog called Mighty Minnie that was winning a lot. And... uh, Jarvis was a promoter, and when I say that, he bought and sold dogs, and he advertised. Uh, every month, you could find Jarvis's ad in one of the magazines, and because of that, I think there was a lot of people back in those days that wound up joining the association just out of. Uh, the fact that there was always a dog being advertised. Well, I think although Jarvis over the years has had several dogs of of different breeds, he's always been uh, partial to the black and That is correct. He's always had a love for the black dogs. All right. And he's like, well, I'm going to name a name you just did. Uh, Jamie Perrin uh, is always looking for a better dog. Uh, he may have an off-breed, off-color dog uh, at some point, but he's always looking for a better black and tan. And uh, that's kind of the way Jarvis was. And in the background, back in the days when Jarvis was really promoting, there was a guy named Wendell Perry that never was recognized as much anything, but that's where the dogs got their training and, and their lessons in life was from Wendell. Uh, and Wendell is still around. He's, he still makes some of the hunts. Uh, he's like a lot of the rest of us. He's, he's too old to participate, but he still likes to visit. Well, you, you touch on a subject right there that I'm identifying more closely with every day, you know, is that fact that we're all getting every single morning that sun comes up, we're one day early, uh, older, if the Lord spares us to see that day. And, uh, you know, uh, 
all of us here are, you and I are the same age, Philip. I think we figured it's seven, I'm seven days older than you. That's correct. So, <laughs> I always kind of figured the reason I loved hunting in the fall of the year so much because maybe it was my birthday, you know, and that was an exciting time for me. But uh, anyway, and of course, Nubbin, he's a little bit older than the rest of us, but uh, he's still got some black in that hair over there. And actually still has hair, as do you, which I'm hair challenged myself, you know. But, uh, well, okay, so we talk about Jarvis Umpress and God love him. You know, he's been such an innovator and such a moving force in the Coon Hound world. And uh, can't, you know, I've, I've always liked Jarvis and be around him. He calls me Brother Steve. You know, when he sees me, does he call you guys that? Does he put brother? He always calls me Brother Steve. How you doing? And, you know, back in the PKC days after he sold it to Larry Meeks, who was my boss while I was there, Jarvis was always there helping out. Uh, we used to have church services on Sunday morning. Jarvis would be there at the church service on Sunday. I always like and respect him, and I still do. And I look forward to getting him on the podcast as we go along. But all right, let's decide. Uh, uh, just give me just a little bit about your military service because you were a career uh, serviceman, right? I was a, from the way most folks are, I was a backward career man. Most folks join the Army, spend their active duty time, and then finish out their 20 years in the National Guard. Well, I was approached by the company commander of the guard unit uh, when I first was going to join the Army. And he said, what you going to do, join the Army and go overseas and fight communism and keep the peace? I swelled out my chest and I said, yes, sir. And he said, why don't you join the guard and do the same thing at home? Keep the peace, fight communism at home? Didn't understand. But I joined, and I realized what he was saying the night they shot Martin Luther King, and I was trying to dry shave and get in a uniform in the back of a deuce and a half headed to Memphis. I understood then, and it's a different story, but one of the biggest coons I've ever gotten in my life was the night I came home and found two soldiers sitting on the doorstep saying, Lieutenant, we got to go. And uh, I'm not going to repeat what they said because that would be not not popular. But anyway, I went through OCS and I became a commissioned officer in the traditional guard. And I made it up through company commander, which I spent five years commanding a company. Then I went to battalion staff and brigade staff. And the job that I had in the civilian side was I was in a small engine business with my father. And uh, in 1980, there was a drought that uh, killed all the grass. Nobody was mowing yards, much less buying a new lawnmower. And we liked, we, we did finally go under. Uh, so I realized that my income in the civilian world wasn't great enough to support my family. And at that time, I made the decision to give up my commission because I didn't have a college degree and go enlisted. So where most folks spend their uh, 
time enlisted and then go commissioned and retire as a commissioned officer, mine was backwards. I got you. So how many years altogether did you have? I, I wound up with a total of 37 years total with 22 years on active duty. Wow. Thank you for your service. That's that's amazing. It Thank really you. Is. I want to move along to uh, the sake of redeeming the time, but you and I have interviewed before, uh, usually on the telephone, articles that have done and so forth. There's a movie called The Great Outdoors, and there's a scene in that movie with John Candy and, and uh, uh, oh, who's the other guy? Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd. They meet this guy in the bar, and he's talking about he got struck by lightning. And they asked him, he kind of stuttered a little bit, and they said, was it six times? And he said, no, 66 times. And that was, you know, you have been struck by lightning. That is correct. Not once, but how many times? Well. Or not maybe directly struck, but you've been involved I've, in I've, lightning strikes. I've been involved a couple of times, but the, the article that you had me uh talked to you about was called A Cat with Nine Lives that was in the American Cooner a few years ago. That's right. And uh, the lightning was part of that. Was part of that. It put me in the hospital. And uh, Can you briefly just go through those each one of those instances? Well, uh, I'll try to, but uh, what you don't know is I just picked out nine and there were some other instances (laughs) that uh, could have been in there, but uh, I was coon hunting back in 1970 or 71, and uh, I had a loaded rifle trying to kill a coon that I thought was going to drown my dog, and didn't I put the rifle back on the sling, and when I jumped off the log, I put a bullet in the back of my head and was blind for eight days. That was one of them. Uh, As a kid, I liked to drown and uh, got a near-death experience before they held me upside down, beat on my back, and got the water out. Uh, been stung unconscious by ground yellow jackets a couple of times. Uh, because you're allergic to them. I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to ground yellow jackets. The other kind of wasps that can sting me, and it doesn't bother me. But the first time that they stung me, they went down my shirt collar and got into my spine, and it uh, uh, made me deathly allergic to ground yellow jackets. I keep an EpiPen in the truck all the time now. I see. Uh, and then what? Well, I, f- I was on uh, maneuvers with the guard, and I'd laid out a compass course uh, for a different battalion. They wanted me to teach their sergeants and lieutenants land navigation because they were getting just where they were depending on the GPSs and that sort of thing. And they were concerned about the batteries failing and they're not knowing how to go. So I told this sergeant major that uh, if there was anything on that compass course that would hurt one of their soldiers, I'd find it. So I was going dead reckoning and I got into some high Johnson grass and just looking at my compass and walking. And I walked off into an unmarked, uncovered, abandoned well and fell a ways, tore up my knee pretty bad, 
And the guy that was on the road, when I showed it to him, he said, how in the world did you get out of that? And I said, well, there was something moved down there besides me, and I came out. Uh, but that's <laughs> that's where one knee wound up. It's caused me problems ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, it was another shooting incident. Oh, well, yeah, I was. Uh, I had loaned a rifle, a 1022, uh, to a fellow at the reunion hunt. Well, the reunion hunt was over, and uh, I looked at it, and uh, I pulled the clip out and looked at it, and it was empty. I stuck it back in there, not realizing that there was a bullet in the chamber. And when I went to sling it on my shoulder, uh, it bumped against my light and went off and went into the uh, right leg and came out and uh, fortunately I hadn't unloaded the dogs so I drove back to the house and I just hit the horn when I hit the driveway and told my wife don't worry about getting dressed get me to the hospital uh, my boot was filling with filling up with blood and uh, so that was another time I'd been shot and both times was coon hunting so uh, spent 37 years in the military and I got hurt, but I got <laughs> tore up all all over the place coon hunting. Uh, well, the lightning incidences, what what were they? Well, we were on, there's a program that the Army's got called Joint Readiness Training Center where they replicate combat as close as they can. You've got a, a laser on your weapon. And then you wear a harness that will pick up those laser tags. So you're shooting at folks with your weapon, but it's just shooting a laser. And we had to dig foxholes and and lay out just everything just like it would be uh, in actual combat. Well, I had my foxhole dug. Uh, I had my early warning out and my claymore and all of those wires went back into my my position because i was the squad leader or i'm correct at that time i was platoon sergeant and anyway the op for the enemy forces they had a scout out scouting our position and this storm came up and it hit him in the dog tags and killed him but all of those wires that i had uh that lightning just decided it'd take a trip down through them and I was touching all of those wires and when it hit it literally threw me to the back of the foxhole and I hit on my elbow which had to be operated on but when they pulled me out of it they said every hair on my arms was standing straight up and I looked like something woolly and they hauled me to the hospital and I spent a couple of days there because it, because of all of those wires, it was just like uh, it, wow. it, it, it hit me. <laughs> well, I I titled that that uh, article, The Cat with <laughs> Nine Lives, because I'd never heard or spoken to anybody that had been through so many uh, actually near-death experiences, you know. Lord must have something in mind for you or or has had and it might be the work that you do with all the kids in coon hunting 
Well, you ever think about that? It uh, it might be that. Uh, I don't know. During during a lot of those years, uh, I pretty well quit going to church, and I was going down some uh, a pretty rocky road, and uh, not that long ago, year or so ago. Uh, I realized that uh, I needed uh, the church family again, mm-hmm. and uh, I have started going back to church. That's great. But uh, I think what you're alluding to is when my grandson got old enough to be involved in coon hunting, uh, I re- got to watching the youth program. And to be truthful, and I'm not just talking about the black and tan breed. All breeds uh, were running real short on what they were doing for the kids. And uh, I wound up taking over the uh, youth program for the Black and Tan Association. And we did a whole lot of things different and still doing different. And uh, after... uh, Several years, I've decided that they need some new eyes, and I'm getting a little bit too old to make all of those trips. So I'm turning it over to a a fellow named Josh Renfro that uh, is going to do at least doing an outstanding job. (laughs) But it was kind of funny. The president of the association normally appoints new committee members, but he looked at me and he said, "If you're going to think about." getting out of the program you have got to find somebody that you want instead of me appointing somebody and i found it in josh yeah well i don't want to embarrass you philip but you know anytime i've been around you at an event and and other people you know how we mentioned so and so and comments will come up and all you're always going on a dead run it seems like You've got a purpose in front of you, no matter where you are in the group. You're working, you're doing, you're, you know, that, that energizer bunny kind of persona. Has that always been the way you were with things? I imagine as well as you did in the military and all that, you probably, that carried through all all of life for you. I've been hyper all of my life. Uh, they didn't know what it was at the time, but I think I was dyslexic. Uh, still probably am. Uh, I was in the fifth grade before I ever learned to read, but yes, I've been hyper all yeah. uh, all the time, and I am very. If I've got a, anything that I'm involved with, I'm very critical about myself and everybody involved. That I want to make sure it's done right, yeah. and the only way I can make sure it's done right is to be going back and forth checking on everything to make sure right. it's being right. done right. Would you agree that that's a good assessment of Philip? Oh, yeah. Sometimes Philip's running wide open, but he don't know where he's going. <laughs> I'm you just know, kidding, Philip. You know, <laughs> I, I, had, I remember one time at PKC, this is a late, later in my career, of course, the last eight, seven years I was with AKC, but we were at the, at the Labor Day Classic down at North Vernon, Indiana, and, and you know, I, I've always been that way, too. I mean, you know, I... I got to be, if there's something to do, I remember in my Autumn Oaks days when I was with UKC, you know, and I was basically the manager of Autumn Oaks. I'd be up on Sunday morning because we knew we were going to do the bench show on Sunday, and I'd be walking the bleachers and all picking up tobacco spit cups. 
and putting them in. And somebody made a comment about that. What are you doing that for? I said, well, it needs to be done. You know, and I kind of in the back of my mind, we have little talks with ourselves, you know, and I said, you know, I want my mantra or my how I'm remembered is that I was the guy that did, did something that nobody else wanted to do. And that, you know, and and there's a lot of takers in our sport. You know, they, they and God bless them, you know, they pay the entry fees and go to the hunt. But as far as they're concerned, that's it. That's their, that's their contribution to coon hunting is to show up, pay an entry fee, you know, build the purse if it's a money hunt or build the numbers, you know, so the registry can brag about it. But that's their contribution, and God bless them for that. But beyond that, they have no concept, no idea, no, uh, 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 they, they just have no, uh, what's the word I want to use here? It's not coming to me. Uh, ambition to do anything else, you know, let somebody else, uh, mow the lawn so we got a good place to park our vehicles. Let somebody else, you know, get flip the hamburgers in the in the kitchen and, and do all that. Let somebody else sweep the clubhouse up where all the muddy boots have been, you know, when the hunt's over and all that, you know. There's some people that just go through life that just think that all happens and it's well and good. I showed up, I entered my dog, I went home, you know, end of story. But, you know, I I could never let myself be that person, you know, and I know you're not. And I know Nubbin's not because I know he still goes at, to the clubs and is there and makes himself available as a guide or whatever at our age. And we should be the ones sitting back there playing dominoes or whatever. I'm laughing because I'm sitting here thinking all the things you mentioned. I'm the master of hounds, the bench <laughs> show judge, the lawnmower. Uh, I bring the groceries. Uh, but if somebody doesn't do those things, there's not going to be a club. That's right. exactly right. Won't, and, be, won't be a hunt to go to. And uh, thank God that I am blessed to have Kevin. Right. He's been coon hunting since he was 10 years old. <laughs> and the hook got set because he got a first place win first time he ever went. <laughs> but anyway, he's now 20. And uh, he's picking up the slack. He always is there to guide. Uh, if Grandpa says, I need some help doing this, he's always there. Yeah. And uh, I feel like that uh, when I'm not able to do what's got to be done at the local club or at the Black and Town Association, that Kevin's going to pick yeah. up the slack. Right. Well, okay, we've spent a good bit of time talking about who you are, uh, Philip, and your background and all, and you're a real interesting fella. But you've taken a lot of pride in your own personal dogs and your breeding and all of that. Take me through that story a little bit about these. What's your kennel name? You put Bear on? Creek Black and Tans. Bear, and, and that is Bear Creek near your home there in, in well, Mary Anna? At the, at the time... And you know where we hold the reunion at. I live right across the lake, Bear Creek Lake, okay. from where that's at. So I was less than a quarter of a mile from Bear Creek Lake when I came up with that kennel name. I got you. And about when was that when you tagged that onto your dog? 1967. Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's it's been around for a while. Yeah, it has. What's been the kind of progression uh, right. uh, up to now? When I first started, uh, needless to say, I didn't know anything about the Black and Town Association. I just hunted with the local guys, hunted mostly by myself. And uh, what I had, I thought, was pretty good dogs. Uh, but they weren't. They were as good as whatever I was hunting with, with folks that go to the dog jockey and buy a $25 dog and turn it, take it back the next week, spend 25 more and get them another dog. And uh, uh, they just weren't good dogs. Uh, I happened to get a couple of grade dogs uh, that were better than average, but I and I thought they were really good. But in the early 80s, Carl Meinhart was transferred into, and he brought a, a couple of dogs that most folks in the black and tan world uh, will remember. Uh, Dr. J, which was out of a litter that all of them made grand night, included uh, Larry DeGroat's Art. He just passed away. Uh, and Art Hunziker had one. But anyway, there was five of them that, made grand night and he had a young dog called tiger lily that went to do great things uh she was a competition dog because when you carried her out on wednesday night it still wasn't a pleasure she was she was a competition dog and i saw what good dogs really were and at that point in time is when I started looking into pedigrees and backgrounds and uh, changed my philosophy. And uh, then I started getting better dogs. And uh, in the early 2000s, I got a dog called G.I. Jane that made, she went from never being in a UKC hunt to Grand Night in nine months, and that included two heat cycles she was for real and everything that i've had since then goes back to her and bef and before that uh carl had a dog that uh was called Meinhardt's moon dancer he made grand night and i bought half of him when carl transferred and then i bought the rest of him so he owned him, and then we owned him, and then I owned him, and then we owned him again. Uh, Carl was known nationwide, and to be truthful, I gave him half of him back when he transferred back to Arkansas because half of the stud fees with Carl promoting him was more money than I was making when I owned all of him. But anyway, Moondancer... Uh, the best compliment I've ever been paid by Carl, and he didn't know I was behind him listening. And uh, Carl said, well, I made him a grand knight, but Heron made him a coon dog. And uh, I've never forgot the compliment that he paid me right. that day. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, and then uh, we mentioned the dog that I uh, was... Uh, privilege to go out on the cast of course we enjoyed visiting there and all that was at the at the world do we do we want to make a, a, a mention some dogs between okay that I, I bred uh at the hunt that jane went to the 
world hunt, there was a boy named Dale Gaskin that was, he, he understood Jane even better than I did, but he was handling her. And he hunted walker dogs. That's all he'd ever owned. And there was a dog up there called Bad to the Bones Blackhawk. And Dale said to me, he said, if you'll breed Jane to that dog, I want a black and tan puppy. Well, I did because I wanted him to have a black dog. And he was a service manager for a Chevrolet dealership. Uh, and when I got the, got the litter on the ground, I said, what would be a good name for him as a service manager for Chevrolet? And I thought about it, and I came up with Z71 because that's a tough truck, good-looking truck, and everything that I wanted to represent in a dog. So I named the dog Z71 and gave him the puppy and the papers, and that was Z71, and he was out of Jane. And he produced... Uh, a dog called that we called uh, Bear Creek Super Sally. And Sally went to the world finals twice. She was bit by a snake, not sure what kind, at the zones on a third time or she would have been to the finals. Uh, three times in all. Three yeah. times in all. And the time you're talking about, she drawed out with a dog called Lone Pine Sue and Randy Smith paid her a compliment, said if she, it, it was down to her and Sue, and uh, if the cast hadn't have been so close to see what was going on, to see her check a tree and come off with a minus, we might have, if is the biggest word in the English language, <laughs> if they hadn't have seen it, yeah. uh, we might have made it to the finals. And the dog that beat her on that cast was Lone Pine Sue, and Sue won the world hunt. Yeah. She did, yeah. Yeah, she was a nice dog, no doubt. And no of course, doubt. I've been privileged to go pleasure hunting with you a few times, not nearly enough, enough, but it was always an enjoyable experience. Well, okay, here we sit. You know, you're 75, I'm 75. Nubbin just crossed that next border there or whatever, mile mark, 80. What are what guys like us? Why are we still out here doing this? I mean, you know, most guys, I, a lot of guys, I live in Florida, you know, a lot of guys, to me, they're, about all they can do is get out there to the shuffleboard court and sit on the sidelines and watch the younger people play. I mean, what what drives us here? Why are we doing this? The reason I think that I'm doing it is I can see the future of coon hunting as a sport, uh, and it doesn't look good. If I can influence a youngster to take up coon hunting, and like I said, I'm blessed that I've got Kevin, but if I'm not here to mentor and do the best I can and go sit on the side by side and listen to the hounds that I love, uh, I feel like I'm not doing what I can do to keep our sport alive. Mm-hmm. Very well put. How do you feel about that, Nubbin? Well, you know, like like I've heard a lot of people say, coon, hound, coon hunting is a sport of the past. It's a dying sport. And it's not as many as there used to be. Uh, I still do it. In fact, I told my wife the other day, 
course, Steve mentioned it. I turned 80 and be 81 in February. But I told her, I told her, I said, Becky, you know, I'm too young to be this old, but I still do just about anything I want. Now, I'm not walking to too many trees that's way in yonder, but I, I still try to go a couple of nights a week. And like, I'm not like a lot of people, like Randy Smith, it goes just about eight nights a week. But I still try to go, and I, I love coon hunting, and I love getting together with people, and I like coming to the White River every year. And it's just, you know, we don't have woods like this at home. And it's to me, it's enjoyable just to get out and walk or get out and ride them side by side through these muddy roads to see big timber, which we don't have that at home. Yeah, that's always been the draw out here for me is just the woods. I call it the cathedral. You know, you walk through these big bottoms that are flat out there and there's no underbrush. And and the, every tree we made, it seemed like this week, we have, have we hunted three nights now already? Have been just about every one of them. The last one I went to with your female last night uh, was, it was a good size oak tree. But it wasn't huge like we've been treating, you know. I mean, there's some big timber out in this country. But back to the point, uh, there's just something inside of us, you know. And even me making the decision with Ella that we were going to live in Florida, geared for people our age, it's convenient. She has grandchildren there, and all of that came into the mix. But even me, I still, you know, I jump in that truck and I make those long miles to go coon hunting every opportunity that I can. But it's for me now, it's not so much about the dogs. It always was. It is about the dogs, but really it's about the people. It's about the relationships. And that's one of the things I've enjoyed so much about this podcasting is not to hear my own voice in in the headphones. But to sit down with people like you, Philip and Nubbin, and talk about the things that we love. And we do that anyway. So why not get it on, on a recording and let some other people in on, you know, this thing that we enjoy? One thing that, uh, and I've told lots and lots of people over the years, the black and tans are not any better or any worse than the other breeds. But I think the people that follow them are more my kind of people. Yeah. Uh, the black and tans, uh, generally, you find more of them in the hands of pleasure hunters than you do competition hunters. And uh, I've competition hunted a whole bunch back when I was younger, but I really didn't enjoy the, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be a good competition hunter, you got to go out there to win. And I went out there to fellowship. I got you. And uh, so I never was a real good competition hunter. Uh, I'm a professional pleasure hunter. Yeah. And uh, But it's the people that keeps me going back and forth black and tan days every year. Uh, oh, yeah. Not the dogs. They're not any better right. than the walker dogs or not any worse than mm-hmm. the blue ticks or yeah. any of the others. But the people that I have bonded with over the years keeps me going right. back well one of the things that that has always appealed to me is the history you know i always like to go back and read about i mean you know i would read everything i could about the walker family in kentucky the fox hunters that had 
the dog, you know, before coon hunting really got to be a big thing. I think coon hunting's always been a part of the American experience. I mean, the the, the pioneers and all, they had tree dogs all down through the years and all. But uh, I've always been intrigued by the history. like the, And I see uh, people nowadays, and there seems to be this teaching in the universities and everything, that history was bad, our past is bad, let's destroy everything that that can connect us to our past, let's get rid of it, and let's go forward. You can't do that. You have to build on what, you know, if you don't look back, you don't know where you're going. That's what I'm, I think. You agree? I totally agree, and uh, I'm kind of a history nut, too. That's why that, uh, in the association I get still get phone calls all the time saying, can you look up and find me a picture of old so-and-so or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've, I've kept all of those books through all the years, and uh, normally right. I can find what they're looking for because I'm a history buff. Yeah, well, I am too and always have have done that and uh and I hope to always do that and I, and I'm encouraged when I get messages from people uh younger hunters asking me about the old dogs and it's not that you know if we keep looking backwards we're going to run in the ditch you know we got to look down the road but at the same time you know it's it's great to look back and see you know the experience and I came along into coon hunting about the time when it was really starting to roll, you know, and I have said to people, you know, I believe I lived in the golden years. I was at UKC, actually, you know, in the early 80s and through that, where we had tremendous entries at the events, you know, and and then also at PKC, you know, where we were knocking on the door of 400 dogs a night at the World Hunt. And now they're getting back up to that point, which encourages me. Well, know. I wrote an article once called The 70s Show. It was put yeah. in our breed album. Uh, and I was showing the correlation for the growth of the Black and Tan Association mm-hmm. and the growth of UKC. When the, when the uh, competition hunts, as we know them now, uh, were just starting to outnumber the field trials which is Mm -hmm. what they had in the past and that growth uh was the growth of the association and the growth of ukc and the night hunts uh Mm -hmm. ran parallel courses right and during the 70s our membership got up to over 1700 individuals and now it's down to about 800 right Right. Well, I was always amazed when I first went to work full time for UKC in 83 and started going to Black and Tan Days. You know, there were two hunts in the country that were really, besides Autumn Oak, were the biggest hunts in the country. And one of them was Black and Tan Days. The other was the Texas State Championship. Those two events, you know, and it it was nothing. You guys got up to over... 300 dogs on a Thursday night with, uh, at Black and Tan Days. I can remember. I said, I didn't know there was this many Black and Tan dogs in the country, you know. So your association's always been, you know, and you've had a lot of good leadership down through the years. And I'm not going to start naming names because I'll leave some important people out and some good people out. But I was always impressed with the way the meetings were held the you know the organization 
the beautiful breed album, a hardbound thing. You know, I, I remember as a product association, we always had a little small, like a, a five by seven or something yearbook. Well, I said, we got to do better. So in 79 and 80, when I was the president there, I came out with a big book, you know, which they still have, but it wasn't a hardbound book, you know. So that's been a, a real success story down through the years. But the members have really supported that association. Yeah. All right, guys, I think we've kind of about uh, shined this tree, as uh, I like to say. I know we could probably spend another hour, but it's been a little more than that now that we've been visiting. Philip, it's great that you came over to spend some time and uh, we don't visit as much on the phone as we should, but we're going to try to do better. And uh, it's good to see you still getting around pretty good. I, we've all had one kind of a health issue or another, and that just goes along with the with the thing. But is there anything that I haven't talked about with you today that you think we should have covered? Uh, time time says we're not going to get into a whole lot of other stuff, and uh, I appreciate uh, the visit and. Uh, Maybe we can do better next time. Well, I think we've had a real good conversation, and uh, and uh, we're going to hopefully get out in the woods here maybe this week, if if not the next trip. So anyway, if you're a black and tan fancier out there, I'd recommend two things to you. Number one, I think you ought to join that American Black and Tan Coonhound Association because they're a really good group doing good things for the young people, and they always have a great breed dates every year. And, uh, you know, the other thing that I, I think uh, you ought to do is uh, get to know some black and tan people in your area and, you know, get your yearbook and go and go down the list there and, and see, uh, pick up the phone and call somebody or send them an email or a message and get to know some of these great black and tan folks because I've, I've really enjoyed it. And if you behave yourself and you get a good reputation, all Philip might invite you to that uh, black and tan reunion at Mariana. And that's, that's kind of like a, uh, a invitation to go to the white house, man. I mean, that, that I know I enjoyed it. So anyway, uh, we're going to wrap this one up from the white river. Uh, your host, Steve Fielder want to briefly mention the DU supply, DU hunting supply, uh, that makes it possible for us to do this podcast. Uh, just great people, and I think that they probably got the best customer service in the country. I mean, how can you be out on a hunting trip and your collar break down and you call them, and they send you one right then, next day, and then wait for yours to come up there so they can fix it. That's just the kind of customer service that they offer, and uh, so we want to thank the U Hunting Supply for uh, providing this opportunity for us to come and visit with you each week. All right, we're going to close it out just like we always do. If somebody asks you, where's Steve Fielder? You just tell them, he's gone to the dogs. <laughs>